Dear Strange New Worlds listeners, You've likely heard about the recent rise in verbal and physical attacks on people of Asian descent in America. In my understanding, which I admit may be incomplete, this is another disastrous spin-off of the COVID-19 pandemic, where a rising tide of socioeconomic stress has been siphoned and weaponized by the reckless rhetoric of certain politicians to crack our thin crust of civility, allowing this magma chamber of underlying discrimination that's sadly always been brewing beneath our feet to erupt in a firestorm of beatings, stabbings, and shootings of Asians in America. These tragic events are similar in some ways to the incidents of racism against African Americans. The source of both, of course, is a pervasive inequality in our perception of race in this country. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, I issued a statement in an episode titled The Journey Towards Justice. Later in 2020, I had a profound discussion with Black activist and writer Rebecca Pierce about the themes of racial justice and protest movements in Star Trek. In my opinion, that episode, titled The Dreamer and the Dream, might be the most important hour of Strange New Worlds produced to date. Please visit these episodes if you're new to the show. A lot of their themes resonate with the current situation. But they also don't. The struggles that Asian Americans face is different from that of African Americans in important ways. The history of blacks and the history of Asians in the Americas is different. The modes of oppression are different. The stereotypes that we strive to define ourselves against are different. And also, it's personal this time. Many of you probably are aware that I'm Asian. I identify as Chinese American, and that multicultural landscape is still something that I'm navigating today. Luckily, I have always lived in communities that have surrounded me with warmth and appreciation for who I am. I'm privileged to say that I have never felt in mortal danger because of my race. But I know that this is not true of many Asian Americans, especially today. It's heartbreaking to hear my family and friends express fear of simply going out for a walk or taking their regular commute. This kind of fear of everyday places and everyday activities that you'd previously never given second thought to oppresses one's soul and suffocates joy and gnaws away at your mental well-being. My cousin in New York City teaches art in a school district where in-person learning has resumed, and she said that many of her Asian students have stopped coming to class, not because they're fearful of contracting the coronavirus, but because they're afraid of being bullied, harassed, or worse, because they're Asian. This isn't right. 
And that's why I wanted to say something to acknowledge and denounce these recent tragic events, even though this, this isn't nearly enough. So I hope to explore these issues more fully in future episodes of Strange New Worlds. The diversity within the Asian immigrant experience, the myth of the model minority, and the evolution of Asian representation in Star Trek. Like, what does it mean that we went from Sulu, a character who represented all of Asia, to George Awa, a character who was specifically from Pulau Langkawi, Malaysia? These are fascinating questions, and we won't get to them all at once, but I promise we'll get there. Until then, I am grateful to StarTrek.com for issuing a statement in support of Asian American and Pacific Islander communities during these troubling times. You can find a link to that, as well as links to further resources, in the show notes. And finally, I'm grateful for you, my listeners, because I know that the fans of Strange New Worlds are good, thoughtful, compassionate people. You wake up each morning with the potential to make planet Earth a more welcoming, inclusive, and safe place through your words and actions. I challenge you to find a way, even just a small way, to do just that. Whether it's trekking in with a friend, reading more about the history of Asian American discrimination, donating time or money to a grassroots organization fighting discrimination and injustice, or enrolling in a bystander intervention course. As Jean-Luc Picard once said, the past is written, but the future is left for us to write. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Last month, I attended the Habitable Worlds Conference, virtual edition, of course, which brought together dozens of researchers from around the globe who are all interested in the science of what grants certain planets the ability to host life and what strips that privilege away. Astute longtime listeners may recall that I went to the previous Habitable Worlds conference in 2017 and brought back a fascinating conversation with Sarah Brothers and Sean Domigal Goldman in episode 22 of Strange New Worlds. Well, now I've got two more habitability minded guests to share their incredible new insights into this intriguing science. Today we are joined by Columbia University astronomer Tiffany Jansen and NASA's chief scientist Jim Green. 
I discovered both Tiffany and Jim were Star Trek fans at this virtual conference. In Tiffany's case, it was when a former Strange New Worlds guest, Kara Brugman, forwarded a photo of Tiffany in a blue TNG science uniform that she had posted in one of the conference's Slack channels. For Jim, it was when we were randomly assigned the same Zoom breakout room to discuss interdisciplinary activities, when he noticed my Star Trek Zoom background, of course, and we got talking about Trek and podcasting, and naturally, that led to Strange New Worlds. Both Tiffany and Jim presented their fascinating work at Habitable Worlds on, well, what makes a planet habitable. And that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today. I'll be splitting my interview with Tiffany and Jim into two episodes. In this episode, part one, we'll get to know Tiffany and Jim's scientific journeys and how they've intersected with fandom, and then learn about Tiffany's research on how planetary rotation impacts habitability. Next time, we'll dive deep into Jim's research on planetary magnetic fields, talk about the virtual nature of the conference, and learn about what gives each of my guests hope. All right. Engage. Tiffany Jansen and Jim Green, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much, Michael, for inviting us. Yeah. So we were all at the Habitable Worlds conference last month. Um, this is a conference that was sponsored by NASA's Nexus for Exoplanet System Science and is focused on trying to understand what factors contribute to planetary habitability to best inform our search for life in the universe. And I feel like this is a very Star Trek goal. Uh, I mean, like in Star Trek, you know, it's the Enterprise's mission to literally explore strange new worlds and seek out new life. So the Star Trek connection for this particular episode couldn't be clearer. Um, but before we get into all of that good stuff, uh, let's um, get to know the two of you a little bit better. So Tiffany, you're a PhD candidate at Columbia University. Um, mm -hmm. It's always a pleasure to have a fellow early career scientist on mm -hmm. the podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your scientific journey up to this point? Oh, yeah. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer since I was like 14. I think my interest in it and uh, habitability outside of the solar system uh, was sparked by Carl Sagan, of course, like it's true for many of us, but specifically it was his pale blue dot. That was literally a life-changing moment. And at the time, this was right before the Kepler satellite launched. So I got to be there uh, when all these new discoveries were happening from Kepler. Um, well, they're not in the field, but watching as a, uh, as a future hopeful. So uh, I started an astronomy club in my high school and applied to the University of Washington. And that's where I went for my undergrad. Hey, go Huskies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I worked there with Eric Eagle, where um, we were writing a, I guess, kind of a theoretical paper on a new method of detecting exomoons. And uh, from there, I went to uh, Columbia University for graduate school, and that's where I am now. And what I've been 
doing for my uh, PhD dissertation is is pretty different from uh, what I'll talk about in this episode. But basically, I study the what are called phase curves of exoplanets, which is basically you're staring at a planetary system, exoplanetary system. And as you watch the planet orbit its star, you see the planet go through its phases, much like the moon goes from new phase to full and back to new again. And from this, you can learn something about the planet's reflectivity, for one, which tells you a lot about the type of particles that could be in the atmosphere or on the surface, depending on what wavelengths you're viewing it in. And also looking at the thermal phase curve, it could tell you something about the like redistribution efficiency of energy in, in the atmosphere of a, of a planet. Wow, sounds like I need to bring you back on Strange New Worlds at some point to talk about that research <laughs> from your thesis. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Jim, so if NASA were the enterprise, you'd be Mr. Spock. You're the chief scientist of NASA, um, which is a super important position. But I'm embarrassed to admit that I know more about what Mr. Spock's job description is than yours. So what exactly does the chief scientist of NASA do? He does exactly what Spock does. He advises, <laughs> he advises the captain. And in this case, that's the NASA administrator. So uh, indeed, uh, I'm very much involved on the administrator's team, involved in talking about the science that we do across all of NASA, everything from astrophysics to planetary science to you know, life science on the, on the space station, et cetera. And uh, give him some advice. Also, uh, I'm a voting member of his executive council or her executive council. We, we, we're moving towards now an environment where uh, the new NASA administrator will be uh, confirmed by Congress. Hopefully that is going to be Bill Nelson. So um, it, it's just uh, it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity for me. But uh, of course, that's not, um, I haven't had that job forever. I. Uh, really started in this field in high school when I uh, got so excited about being involved in an observatory with a 12-inch Alvin Clark refractor. I took an astronomy class in my high school, and this is in Iowa, you know, at the middle of the United States. <laughs> who, who would think, uh, you know, that's a, a center of space activity, but indeed it was. Uh, so I got so excited about it. I, I was doing astrophotography. I was developing instruments for the telescope. I uh, did solar photography, developed my own film, got published in Sky and Telescope, uh, images that I would send in. And then I went to the University of Iowa. And so uh, my first astronomy course, uh, you know, with 450 other students was with James Van Allen, uh, James Van Allen, of course, is our first uh, space scientist uh, with his Geiger-Mueller tube launched on Explorer 1. And, uh, of course, he discovered what's called now the Van Allen radiation belts. So I knew uh, Dr. Van Allen uh, very well from very early on um, and uh, decided to stay at the University of Iowa and get my uh, undergraduate master's and Ph.D. there. And I worked on all kinds of satellites before I even left the University of Iowa. And then I went to Marshall Space Flight Center in 1980, worked there for about four or five years and got involved in even human exploration. 
because I ended up being a safety diver in the neutral buoyancy tank where I would uh, push around astronauts and engineers. And, you know, so I got to see what humans were really doing, you know, when they go into space. That was really exciting. Cool. And then I went to Goddard Space Flight Center, managed the National Space Science Data Center, which is, um, was NASA's largest archive at the time. And then I ended up uh, going down to NASA headquarters, running the planetary program for 12 years before I became the chief scientist. But along the way, you know, I, I met and interacted with uh, several Star Trek notables, you know, <laughs> such as um, William Shatner. Uh, I just was on his podcast not too long ago. Oh, wow. Uh, I had um, Nichelle Nichols come down to the Grail launch. We had launched a satellite to the moon. She was absolutely fantastic. Signed her photograph. Uh, I mean, she had a line out the door and around the building, and, and she gave interviews, and she just was so wonderful. I also met and talked to uh, James Duhan, who, Duhan, who is, of course, Scotty, mm -hmm. and um, uh, spent a little time with uh, Patrick Stewart. At, <laughs> no uh, way. Yeah, yeah, at, uh, at uh, the premiere opening of the, of the Martian at the Toronto Film Festival, for which I was a... Um, a consultant on the film. Oh, wow. So, uh, <laughs> so I want to know a little bit more what that's like. Being oh, a it was great. It was film. great. So, so indeed, science and science fiction, as Carl says, Carl Sagan does a dance, you know, where what we learn in the science ends up being elements of uh, science fiction, allows us to think or dream of the future. If you don't dream about your future, you don't have a future. You have to spend time thinking about it. And science fiction helps us do that. And so it's, a, it's really a great marriage between those two. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, science fiction has been a big part of your life, Jim. Is that fair to say um, that you know, Star Trek has been a fuel of yours? I would uh, easily say that in the sense that uh, I watched the very first episode and everyone all the way to the end, even signed the petition to keep it going. <laughs> so, nice. so uh, indeed, uh, the, the early set of Star Trek was uh, quite astounding. You know, it was in 66 when it started, I was 15 years old. All right. And TV was just those three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS, okay, <laughs> dominated by Westerns, which I have to tell you, I dearly loved, you know, I'd be, there wasn't many Westerns I wouldn't watch, you know, I, you know, so uh, when Star Trek came along, it was really revolutionary. I mean, the concept, and it wasn't like a Western in space, not to me, it wasn't anyway, it really was a, a, a set of really creative and forward-thinking concepts of exploring. And the attraction was huge. So before I even got involved in this 12-inch Alvin Clark refractor at the Witte Observatory, I was fascinated by, uh, by space and space journey. And it was through Star Trek. Tiffany, so you and I are from a generation that couldn't grow up with the original series. So how did you yeah. first encounter Star Trek? Well, I'm ashamed somewhat to admit that I've only seen TNG. Uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a TNG purist in that way, I suppose. That's uh, fine. I have seen the newer movies, but uh, to me, Star Trek is just embodied by TNG, you know, like the whole mm -hmm. philosophy side of it and um, humanism and all that. I'm less about the 
the pew pew and more about the <laughs> what ifs, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm not really sure how I started watching it. Um, it came on Netflix one, one day. And of course, uh, <laughs> we're, we're all addicted to Netflix. So I just binge watched that in uh, my undergrad, actually, as I was studying astronomy. And mm -hmm. that was a really cool parallel. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of hopeful exploration of the cosmos that is embodied in TNG and then like your own personal investigation of the cosmos through mm -hmm. astronomy classes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a favorite moment in Star Trek or a character or a scene from TNG that kind of just illuminates or encapsulates why you love that show so much? Oh, man. Um, well, one classic episode is uh, Measure of a Man. Mm -hmm. Just the question behind sentience and and what it means to be alive and i don't know i just love that stuff i i don't know what else to say about it just really um it just excites me especially now that ai and whatnot is, is developing exponentially supposedly so yeah i completely agree that episode um just blew my mind when i first watched it it's such a powerful narrative um and speaks not just to the future but to right now um incredibly Mm -hmm. Jim, do you have a, um, a special moment or character from Star Trek that uh, that you can play in your mind rent-free? Of course, indeed. Uh, several of the original Star Trek episodes are really uh, standouts and did indeed make a number of important social comments of the time. You know, you have to remember the 60s. This is um, where the Civil Rights Amendment is coming up and being voted on. And, and uh, I lived in an area where, indeed, um, bathrooms were segregated, okay? And, and even sitting on the bus was segregated, all right? I lived in that era. And uh, one episode, of course, is uh, with Frank Gorsham. Uh, who is uh, chasing another individual of his uh, from his planet, and uh, they're constantly battling. And uh, in the scene that's so unbelievable is when Frank uh, Gorsham is uh, faced with um, Captain Kirk on why there's such a a battle between Frank and and his colleague that he's chasing, and uh, this this particular race. Uh, was colored half black, half white. And you could see that on their face. And Frank said, It is obvious to the most simple-minded that Loki is of an inferior breed. The obvious visual evidence, Commissioner, is that he is of the same breed as yourself. Are you blind, Commander Spock? <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. You're black on one side and white on the other. I am black on the right side. I fail to see the significant difference. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. And it hits you like a ton of bricks. You know, I watched the whole show and didn't even realize that until he said that, you know, and so prejudices and things that would come up in the show were, were uh, really unbelievable and important social comments. But, you know, as a young teenager, the, you know, the episodes you really get into are the, are, you know, like um, where Star Trek runs into the Romulans for the first time and they have a cloaking device and how do they overcome that? And, and yet uh, you find out the Romulans are related, their species related to, uh, to the Vulcans 
which then brings up prejudices there that were encountered. So that kind of theme is uh, is throughout. And of course, the crew is a is a diverse crew. That's also was quite revolutionary at the time. And then Mirror Mirror is another one that I that I dearly love. You know, which. Uh, <laughs> which has got um, uh, the good Spock and the bad Spock, good Kirk and the bad Kirk, uh, you know, in different dimensions that get mixed up. And, you know, so there's also also uh, some theoretical concepts of parallel dimensions that they, that they also had. So they're just, they're just a number of those that are really quite outstanding. Yeah, definitely. Um, the social commentary of the 60s show, you know, is uh, so important. And I feel like... Um, you know, as somebody who grew up with Star Trek, I started watching when I was at a very young age. And so Star Trek has like meant different things to me throughout the different stages of my life. At the beginning, of course, I was just into the idea of adventure and exploring space and the pew pew was really interesting to me, you know, like, yeah, let's go blow up some Romulans. And then I That's started right. to, to get into the, oh, wow, these characters are like actually really interesting people. And like, I would like to be their friend. And then when I started to realize more of the, the idea of what is the society and what is culture and what prejudices do we have, the, the messages and the morality and the ethics that Star Trek brought into my life life was very important so it's it's really evolved as a as a show if, well I, I mean it hasn't evolved as a show it's always been the show that it's been but as i've grown up uh, i've seen the different i've seen star trek through different lenses and it's uh, been able to mean so many different things to me well you know it's really it was really well ahead of its time in the sense of you know you were traveling in a starship to another planet and we hadn't found any other planets, right? Right. I mean, this is decades, decades before we actually find planets. Yeah, we haven't even been to the moon when Star Trek first came. Right, right. And so uh, uh, the diversity of those, you know, and I, I, I read a couple things. There was, um, I can't remember the book on Star Trek, but anyway, there was a dialogue early on, the first episode that Gene Roddenberry is trying to do. And he asked the, asked the crew, okay, I want an alien set. I want some things here put out, you know. And he comes back the next day to see this alien set that the team had put together. And he walks up and he says, this is not an alien set. <laughs> and he goes over to this tree that's sitting there, rips it out of the, uh, of the ground, turns it around and sticks it into the, into the ground and says, now that's an alien tree. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, you know, and he was struggling. Yeah, he was struggling to get uh, these concepts, you know, about think differently. Think at how it, it would be if you were orbiting a different sun and, and different uh, structures or different life forms don't have to look like us. Those were the kind of things that, you know, we're really moving into right now. NASA invented literally invented the field of astrobiology, the field of looking for life beyond Earth. What are those attributes? What do we need? You know, these are the kind of research things, things that Tiffany's doing. What are those environments like? And could they be habitable? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. What is it like to live on a planet that has a day that's as long as our entire year? Well, this is a perfect segue into our scientific discussion for this episode. You're absolutely right. I love that, that the idea of Gene Roddenberry picking up a tree and turning it upside down and planting it in the ground is essentially a simpler version of what we try to do today by taking a planet, 
<laughs> slowing it down or speeding it up or something like that, as you do in your models, Tiffany, or changing its magnetic field as you think about Jim. Um, and I just wanted to say that uh, the, the idea of how you know, Star Trek started in an age where we didn't even know that there were exoplanets. And Tiffany and I grew up in the age of Kepler, right? Uh, Kepler launched uh, as our careers were just starting and discovered thousands of planets out there and really showed us that the galaxy is populous with planets. Um, and when I give talks to, to the public, something that I often like to say is that what the Kepler Space Telescope did was prove uh, what the Star Trek writers just assumed that there would be another planet to visit every single week. And Kepler actually discovered, yes, indeed, there is another new planet to visit every week. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so getting into the Habitable Worlds Conference, um, this was a week-long virtual event full of fantastic talks and discussions, trying to both dissect and integrate our knowledge about processes and uh, that factor into a planet's habitability. And to ease our listeners into this scientific discussion, maybe we can just say a few words about what we mean as scientists when we talk about habitability. What, what does the concept of planetary habitability mean to you? What does it mean when we ask, is that planet habitable? Yeah, this is such a contentious question, even amongst uh, scientists. So far, the canonical, uh, what's it called, description or rule for habitability is it has to have liquid water. And uh, I remember hearing this growing up as a teenager and thinking, like, why does it have to be liquid water? Why can't it be, um, I don't know, liquid ammonium or something like that? And Sometimes I still ask myself that question, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But um, yeah, mostly so far it has to do with temperature. But now we've gotten into things like uh, magnetic activity, for one. Do we have to be shielded from flares on stars and you know, stuff like that? You know, when I was uh, head of planetary uh, and I started in 2006, I knew a little bit about astrobiology, but that's really when I got turned on by that whole science. And, and uh, so I asked um, our top astrobiologists, give me a definition of life. Because you know, what I wanted to do was build an instrument and have it go to X, Y, and Z place and find life. Okay. So this was uh, quite a discussion. There were a lot of uh, conferences. There were a lot of involvement in, in defining what uh, life is. And of course, I was looking for a definition that would cover different types of life. Didn't have to be carbon-based life necessarily, you know. So, mm -hmm. so make it make it general, but make it rigorous. All right. So they came back. Now remember the day they came in my office and said, "Okay, we we can answer your question." I said, "All right. What is life?" He said, "Life has three attributes. It metabolizes. Now that means it takes in liquid." Uh, food that the liquid then is used as a solvent and extracts the nutrients that's needed. And then the liquid is used to eliminate the waste from the food. So that's metabolism. The second thing is it reproduces. And the third thing is it evolves. And that's it. And they were delighted. And I can't tell you how depressed I was. <laughs> And, and the reason why, the reason why is how am I going to build an instrument that measures metabolism, let alone reproduction and evolution? You just, just forgot it, you know? Yeah, is it, yeah. So, so, so are we, are we really at a dead end? And that's when we step back and we said, okay, let's tease apart this metabolism concept. 
that requires a liquid. Now for life like we know it, that liquid's water. But as Tiffany points out, it may not necessarily be, okay? A liquid on Titan is methane. Plenty of, you know, hydrocarbons and, and fuel and, and may have life like we don't know it. That would be the place to look for what we call weird life, you know, life <laughs> not like us. So with that definition then, knowing that we have to have liquid, that kind of bounds the temperature range, you know, because liquid has its three phases and you've got to have it at a temperature where it can be maintained at a liquid. That also means it has to have a pressure range living in an atmosphere, okay? And then, of course, you've got to be able to have the right amount of material available, you know, what we think is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur, okay? All those basic elements, those building blocks of life, uh, so they have to be around here somewhere. And then you got to have time. You got to have time to be able for the evolution to take place that then takes that environment and creates an environment for life. Now, how that occurs, we still are completely in the dark. What was the spark that takes inanimate things and creates life from that? Right. You know? We're really clueless. And uh, we've been trying, when I was head of planetary, I was investing in a number of areas like weird life, like in some of these areas where we were looking at what the origin of life is and whether we have to have RNA first and then DNA, or we have to have DNA first and how can we get that, you know? So those concepts we're still tackling. But that's where the environment comes in. The environment's got to be just the right temperature range with plenty of these elements and water and the right material and enough time to be able to create through an evolutionary path life. So it sounds like there are a lot of different factors that will influence a planet's overall habitability. You're both experts in different planetary processes that contribute to habitability. Tiffany, you gave a stellar talk at Habitable Worlds about your work on planetary rotation. And then Jim, you served on a super fascinating panel about planetary magnetic fields. Um, so maybe we can talk uh, first about Tiffany's work. Tiffany, can you tell us a little bit about how you studied how planetary rotation affects habitability? Yeah, so... Uh... The main question I was asking is how does day length and also how does the speed of the rotation of a planet affect its habitability? And by habitability, I mean, I guess I, I have to define it uh, in order to answer that question. And during that study, I defined it to be where you have a surface and that is at a temperature in which liquid water can be maintained. So between zero and 100 degrees Celsius. So the way I explored how uh, rotation affects habitability is through using a global climate model or a general circulation model. And basically what that is, is it's a three-dimensional model in latitude, longitude, and altitude. And it attempts to kind of uh, recreate the dynamics of the atmosphere, taking things like temperature and uh, atmospheric composition um, and all that into account. And the one I used in particular is one developed by NASA 
Uh, it's called the Rocky 3D GCM, the General Circulation Model. So we took an Earth-like model that uh, rotates and has the same day length as Earth, and then we uh, slowed it down. So we explored what is an Earth-like planet like if it has a day that's twice as long as Earth's, or uh, four times as long, eight times as long, 16 times as long, 32 times as long. And I think we went almost all the way to tidally locked, in which case that means that your day length is equal to your year. But we didn't quite make it because, you know, some of the parameters of the model, it kind of breaks down. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did ask about a day that is 256 Earth days in length. And the biggest result from that was uh, how the Coriolis effect affects temperature distribution on a planet's surface. So the Coriolis effect for the listeners is, is basically the effect when you watch a rocket launch or something and the rocket appears to curve off in one direction. Well, the rocket is actually still going straight up but it appears to curve because the Earth that we are standing on is rotating away. And that rotation also has that kind of curving effect on the atmosphere that gets heated at the surface. And when stuff gets warmer, it rises. And as it rises, it, it gets, kind of turns off, I guess, and it becomes banded like we uh, see on uh, Jupiter, for example, is banded, uh, mm -hmm. but on Earth we have streaks of clouds and all that. So when we slow a planet down, less of that curvature takes place. So what we get is uh, clouds forming at the substellar point. So that is the point that is directly beneath the, your star. And that happens because, well, first you have to have water on the surface. And as that water is heated up, uh, it evaporates and then uh, forms clouds in the atmosphere. And like I was saying, usually when the water evaporates, it gets kind of curved away and uh, starts traveling along the Earth's uh, latitudes. But if you're not getting turned away, then you just end up forming one big cloud right underneath the stellar spot, I guess, at noon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is uh, really interesting in terms of habitability because on one hand, you have like more of a greenhouse effect going on, but at the same time, you're reflecting more light back into space. So clouds are pretty reflective. Uh, they're bright when we look at images of the earth, for example. And uh, that is because the light is being reflected off. So if you don't have that light being absorbed by the earth, then uh, your temperature actually goes down a bit. So uh, what we see when we slow the rotation down is that the average global temperature goes down, but there are more places on the planet that are warmer. So for example, Near the poles, it is warmer, but when you have a faster rotator, that warmth is kind of concentrated near the equator. <laughs> that, that was a lot of fantastic information. Let me see if I can recap for my yes. own um, for my own knowledge. So, so you use the global climate simulation um, that incorporates all of the physics of a planetary atmosphere, and then you slowed down the rotation of the Earth. Um, mm -hmm. and ran different simulations with different slower rotation speeds. And the slower the planet rotates, the 
weaker the Coriolis force and yes. the more clouds are allowed to pile up right underneath the sun, which yes. reflects more light to space, making the planet overall cooler. Uh, but yes. then I think I missed the part about certain parts heating up. Could you say that part again? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so when that warm air rises, usually it, it kind of sticks around the equator. But because that air isn't getting kind of curved away, it's allowed to travel more towards the poles. So it uh, heats up the poles more than uh, it does when you have a faster rotating planet. Got it, uh, got it, got yes. it. So the, the circulation cell, as we call it in atmospheric science, mm -hmm. is able to extend farther towards the poles, moving warm air up there and yes. warming the poles. Okay. Exactly, okay. yes. That Hadley cell is extended towards the poles. Got it. Okay, so overall, would you say um, if we discovered a planet out there that was a slow rotator versus a fast rotator, just based on that, which one is more, quote unquote, habitable? <laughs> yeah, so if you, if you are equating habitability to the amount of surface area that can maintain liquid water, then the slower rotators would be quote unquote more habitable. Mm -hmm. um, but that isn't true for the very, very slow rotators. There's kind of a, a sweet spot for habitability when it comes to rotation, because the uh, slower you get, the heat transport mechanism changes from uh, that equator to pull to day to night. So the like overall average temperature goes down because you have one side of the planet that is uh, not receiving any sunlight for a much longer period of time. Okay. And where is that sweet spot approximately? <laughs> for our models, it was for an Earth-like planet that had a day that was about eight Earth days long. So their day was actually more like a week long as we okay. So if, if the Earth had slowed down its rotation such that uh, a day became a week long, we would be more habitable than we are now, at least by the metric of uh, a surface area of our planet that has liquid water. Yes. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, that's, that's super fascinating. Yeah, um, but it would be overall cooler. <laughs> this, this is so cool stuff. It's mind bending. That's, that's great. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that explanation, mm -hmm. Tiffany. Mm -hmm. Um Jim, let's turn to you. So, um, you know, well, let me comment on what, what Tiffany has said. Yeah, because, um, Michael, you'd said, you know, somewhere out there, is there a planet that may have those attributes? And the answer is yes. And it's <laughs> Venus. Yeah, it's right. Venus. Yes. All right. So what Tiffany has done is revolutionize our thinking of how a planet like Venus could have been and probably was mm -hmm. habitable in its past. Yes. So we are trapped in, in mentally in the thinking of today, when in reality, we need to be thinking about the evolution of what happens to our individual planets over time. True. So the current thinking in it is that Venus was probably habitable with a significant amount of water, where the clouds were piling up at the subsolar point, reflecting light, providing that modulation. Water vapor is a great greenhouse gas. And it was probably like that for billions of years before the runaway greenhouse effect took over and made it a planet that's not habitable, we believe, 
in the state it is today. But that means life could have come and gone on that planet. And yeah. so the, this is a fantastic way we should be addressing how we look at other planets around other stars. You know, astronomers get into this concept of, well, let's look for Earth 2.0. Now, to <laughs> me, if they want to look for something exactly like Earth today, it's really looking for Earth 4.6, because that's how old we are. Earth 2.0, <laughs> you wouldn't want to live on. So the concept then is time, the time. You know, the planets all evolve. Their stars are evolving. Therefore, the planets are going to evolve. All that changes radically over long periods of time. And so even though we have this nice snapshot of time, you know, in our lifetime, hardly anything changes relative to a solar luminosity. Certainly, you know, we're going to feel the same rays from the sun virtually completely during our whole lifetime. But the sun is going to continue to increase in energy. And we're going to look like Venus in the future. All, you know, so comparative planetology is critical for us to be able to think about uh, not only how our planet will evolve, but when we look at other solar systems, where are they in that evolutionary sequence? Totally. Yeah. And um, taking a more Star Trek perspective of uh, life on a planet in which you have this giant substellar cloud, you can ask culturally, would intelligent life that lives on such a planet even develop any kind of astronomy? Would they be able to see the stars at all and, and question what they are and if there are planets around them? I love that. I love that connection. I often think that about the squid that are definitely in Europa's ocean. Definitely, of course, not being definite <laughs> at all. But <laughs> um, uh, I think yeah. they are too. <laughs> I think they are too. Just when I, you think about it, you know, there is an environment that we believe has all the right stuff. It's got plenty of water. The energy it's getting is from the tidal forces, okay? It's an elliptical orbit, and so that body evolves. We see ice sheets that are subducting, and it's been that way for 4.6 billion years. <laughs> so it's got everything that we've been talking about, okay? It has the opportunity that if life started there at any time in the past, for it to develop into complexity, and complexity really is all about how life evolves certain capabilities. There are a number of evolutionary breakthroughs that occur, you know, like mobility, like eyes, sensing, okay, the ability to reason and react. Those are all evolutionary things that occur that require time. And I think Europa's got it. I think I think Europa's got the best opportunity to have complex life. I'm hopeful too. I always joke yeah. about the the mer people on Europa. <laughs> yeah, but I love that what you brought up, Tiffany, about if there was a, a surficial civilization on um, an Earth-like exoplanet with a slower rotation, they may never see the night sky. Uh, it would never occur to them. It would never occur to them. You know, what's going on? They would have to have the ability to get above the clouds yes. first to recognize something new. 
Yeah. Imagine that. That would be, wow, that'd be mm -hmm. amazing to just say <laughs> if they develop some kind of, uh, you know, airplane and finally they break through the clouds and, you know, it's blue and yeah. or maybe it's not blue. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's a great idea for a sci-fi concept. One of the questions that I was going to ask you both was to dream up a planet that has to do with the speciality uh, that you, you were talking about in terms of your science for a future Star Trek episode. So this sounds like you've already answered that question, Tiffany, <laughs> that if they visit one of these planets with a slow rotation, huge cloud builds up, uh, civilization that never saw the night sky, and then they break through at just the moment, say, that the Enterprise is in orbit, and that they're like, what is going on? What is all of this? And is that a, another airplane? But why is it so high up? And the, yeah, yeah, I, I think that yeah. would be a great episode. Yeah. You're listening to my interview with Columbia University astronomer Tiffany Jansen and NASA chief scientist Jim Green. I hope you found Tiffany's work as fascinating as I did. And I absolutely agree with the notion that we need to think about habitability over deep time. That is, over billions of years of star-planet evolution. In the burgeoning fields of exoplanetary science, we often use our solar system bodies as benchmarks. That's why you'll hear terms like super-Earth or hot Jupiter— and that's why studies like Tiffany's start with a robust model developed for Earth climate science and go from there, tweaking it ever farther and farther away from Earth-likeness to generate an imaginarium of possible planets. But even here in the solar system, we see a variety of planetary fates, histories of habitability come and gone, with only Earth thriving with clear signs of life to this day. But why? We'll continue this conversation with Tiffany Jansen and Jim Green next time, turning now to Jim's expertise, magnetic fields. Until then, see you out there.